Well, amen. Hey, this is such a great place to be the pastor of. Michelle and I love being here. We love being in this church. Um, you know, we just, um, you know, the truth is Michelle and I really loved the city and the town and the church that we were at before we came here. And uh, we really love that. But, but since the Lord has moved us here, we just, you know, on a regular basis, we can't say, we, we, just, we say to each other, I can't believe how good God is that he brought us here. And as much as we loved where we were, we are so much happier here. And you guys are a huge part of that. And we just, uh, we, we just love being here. So I just want to say thank you. It's weird being thanked for doing something I would happily do for free. Um, but anyway, thank you for saying thank you. That, and I just appreciate uh, you guys and the leaders here at this church so much. And what an amazing church family to be a part of. I was thinking about that this morning in our new members class. Got a bunch of people in there. And uh, I'm so excited. You know, Eddie and I and Darren, we were sitting in there this morning and looking around and just so thankful at all the, all the folks that say, hey, we want to make this our church home. So we're, we're excited about that. You'll get to see who these people are. And when you see them, you'll go, oh, yeah, I like that person. I'm glad they're going to be here. So it's going to be awesome. Hey, we are back in the book of Genesis this morning, and uh, we'll see how far we get today, but we're going to be looking at the days of creation, and we're just going to stop when we're out of time. So maybe we'll get through all seven of them, but we'll see. And, um, you know, when we think about the book of Genesis, it is the book of beginnings. It, it's a book that gives us context, helps us understand um, who God is, who we are, and it helps us understand the world that we live in. And so it's, it's a book on beginnings, the beginning of the, the human race, the beginning of nations, where did all the nations come from, and the beginning of the Jewish nation, the nation that God chose to send his Messiah through. What an amazing thing. And it's a book that communicates God's priority, power, and authority. We looked at that last week. And our need for faith. And so the question is, in one sense, uh, why are we studying Genesis? And last week we just said, because it's in the Bible and we should study everything in there. And, uh, but it's foundational. Uh, we don't really know who God is if we don't think deeply about Genesis. We won't know who we are. We won't understand the gospel. And Genesis is really a foundation of theology that we need to live life every day. Now, um, the New Testament, just so that you know, um, quotes uh, Genesis, uh, people, events, or passages uh, more than 103 times. So throughout the New Testament, there is a direct um, discussion of the book of Genesis. And more than 60 times, Genesis 1 through 11. Like that's foundational. Those things are foundational. These things are foundational for our faith. Now, um, when we think about this, um, there are a few different ways that we can approach Genesis, and we'll jump into that in a second. But one of the things that I do want to say is, as we go through this, uh, this book, is that when you think about uh, what God says the church is, um, Paul says this to Timothy, and this is God speaking through Paul about the local church. And he just says, if I delay, um, I'm writing to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The church is the household of God. And then it describes the church in this way, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So God intends the local church, and just so you know, 
that means you. God intends Christians to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. You know, it's interesting the way we can approach theological authority and, 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 pro, and prominence and that kind of stuff. And it's easy for us to look at, like, say, for example, seminaries that train pastors. We can look at people with PhDs that write books and, and, and write theology books, and we can go, oh no, seminaries need to be the ones that protect the truth. Or, or we need to, if I really want to know something about the Bible, I need to find an expert that I can go ask. You know, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't say seminaries, and it doesn't say experts, and it doesn't say authors are a pillar in support of the truth. It actually says the church is the pillar in support of the truth. Now, I am in no way opposed to education. So I was a pastor, and I was teaching youth, and I'm reading these commentaries written by these brilliant people. And I'm reading a really challenging passage, maybe not challenging to understand, but in our culture, challenging to apply. It was a passage on Paul saying, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man because Adam was created first and then Eve. And so I'm reading that passage, and in one commentary it says, if you knew Greek, you would know that it doesn't mean what it's saying. And then I read another commentary that said, if you knew Greek, you would know it means exactly what it's saying. And I'm thinking to myself, but I don't know Greek. And I actually decided that day, if I'm going to be a person that is going to stand and teach God's Word to people, I should actually be able to personally sort through those things. And so I went off to seminary, and I studied Greek, and I studied Hebrew. And so I am a huge proponent of education. I prioritized education in our kids' lives. Um, I wanted them to, be, to excel um, educationally, and I wanted them to go to school, and they all went to college. And my son right now is in seminary. So I don't devalue education. I don't devalue the intellectually brilliant people who were my professors when I was in seminary. I don't devalue the spiritually faithful people that taught me so many things about the Bible. But one of the things that we all need to recognize is that God intends average Christians to read the Bible, to understand the Bible, and to... Um, be people that believe truth. And so that's a, that is a very important thing for us as believers to understand, that you are the pillar and the support of the truth. And so that's a, that's a significant thing. Now, when we think about the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, he's a guy writing Scripture. He is an inspired New Testament writer. And when he's preaching to people in a church, do you want to know what they did? Um, Acts 17 tells us that they opened up the Bible, that they read it, and that they evaluated whether or not the things he were, was saying were true. And so God intends us to be able to read and understand the Bible. And actually, just so you know, you don't have to be a Greek or Hebrew scholar to read and understand what the Bible says. And so, we, it is important that we understand the truth. And actually, 
Um, Christians across the United States are the ones who keep Christianity theologically faithful. It's not educational institutions, and it's not authors. It's the average Christian sitting in the pew. And that's what God says here. And that is why it is so important for you as a Christian to just be reading the Bible, and you start at the beginning and you read to the end, and then when you're done, you do it again, and you trust the Holy Spirit in your heart to lead you to truth. And that does. And I just want you to know, I am not devaluing experts, but we don't offload um, the truth to another person. When I sat in seminary, and I had a professor that said something that didn't match Scripture. You want to know what I didn't do? I didn't say, well, okay, you're the expert, so I'll go with what you say. I thought, well, what does God say? And and I would give careful consideration to the things that they said, but I said to myself, what does God say? Because ultimately, it is my job to be personally faithful before the Lord. And um, so anyway, um, and then you want to know what God says we're supposed to do? Um, He says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will teach others also. We're supposed to find faithful people and have them teach. We are supposed to find faithful people and learn from them. And so we need to understand truth and we need to exalt and follow faithful people. And just so you know, that is our prayer for every single person in this church, that you would be spiritually faithful. That is our prayer for all the dads in this church, that you will be a faithful leader in your family. That is our goal for all the leaders and teachers in this church, that they will be faithful people who have received God's Word and who pass it on faithfully. And that's actually what we're looking for in elders and pastors, faithful people. So, um, you know, it's interesting um, on the whole issue of creation, um, as, we, as we jump into this, and, and what I'm going to start with today, it's not my goal to get into the controversial things about Genesis. Um, I, I appreciate the um, advice that uh, C.W. Smith, I talked about him some time ago, a pastor I served under, um, and one of the things that he said is before we talk about what the Bible means, we should know what it says, and so my goal is to start today and maybe, well, we'll see if it's today, maybe today and next Sunday. And let's just start by reading what Genesis says. And then we're going to circle back around and we're going to talk about the various views. Now, I'm not promising that none of the things I think about those things are going to come out today, but that's not my main goal. Um, when, when you think about educational institutions, you know, the Bible says that knowledge puffs up. And um, the Bible also says that God is opposed to the proud. So knowledge is a really good thing, but there's a really negative element of knowledge. And there's a lot of times that that Satan will use pride, he uses intellect, he uses a desire to be accepted um, as as a way to lead people astray. And so those are things that we need to know. Now, I think it was interesting. I was actually curious how many colleges um, and seminaries in the United States hold to six 24-hour day creation, a literal creation, six-day creation of the universe. How many of those colleges hold to no death before sin? Or 
a global flood, that it wasn't a local flood or it wasn't no flood, but it was actually a flood that covered the world. And how many hold to a young earth? And um, honestly, I expected to find a list of about five institutions. Like I'm just thinking, how many colleges today hold to that? I'm thinking probably almost none. Um, but what I found out is that there's 205 colleges in the United States that the college is committed to that. And what I thought was interesting is that Biola and Talbot are not on that list. Um, you want to know who else is not on that list? Um, Trinity Theological Seminary, our denomination educational institution is not on that list. Now, what that doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that there are no teachers in those institutions that are on that list, but what it does mean is that those schools have not taken a stand on that. So that's just an interesting thing. Um, I also want to say that when it comes to that kind of thing, some of the, the people that I respect and, and I'm so thankful for are not personally on that list. But we're going to be talking about these things, and we're supposed to be people that are faithful in this. So um, I want to start by just listing off some general approaches to the book of Genesis, and then we're going to talk about these things later. But these are like four kind of approaches to the book of Genesis. One is that it is an inspired historical description of how God created the world. So that's one of the approaches. And I think within that, there's kind of two categories. One category believes that the earth was created in six 24-hour days. Um, there's another person I know of that says, no, it is a literal description of earth, but day doesn't mean day, so those days are really long periods of time. And uh, so there's one person I know of that holds to that. And as we go through this, what that, I just think to myself, really, I don't know how that really helps you because what, 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 that, what you're holding to there is that for what, six million years there was no sun but there was light you know I'm like there's all kinds of things as you as you read through genesis that you would just go that's kind of a weird okay i'm sorry i'm not getting into that today um but that this is an inspired description and god and god is teaching us through the history of creation how we should view him in the world and theology a second category is that it is a figurative description of creation. And the, the two ways that, that I can think of that people approach that, one of them is that it's a poem, that it's poetry, and that it's, we shouldn't take it literally. It's just a poetic account of creation. And um, next week, I'll tell you like several of the reasons why I think that's a really wrong concept. Um, the second way, the second figurative approach to this is that it's a, a mytho-history, that it's a myth that's presented like history, um, and it, there's lessons that God is teaching in it. So, like, a, uh, an example of that would be a parable that Jesus tells, where he'll say, hey, there was a farmer that went out to sow. It's not that Jesus is citing this farmer who sowed. He's using an illustration to teach. Another very close analogy to that type of a view would be when Nathan went to David, and after David sins, and he says, hey, there's a guy who has a, a sheep, and this other guy went and took a sheep and killed it and fed, his, fed it to his guests. And so that's kind of like this historical account. 
uh, David believes that, starts saying that person who did that should be put to death, and then the prophet says, actually, no, that's you. That is an analogy of what you did. And so there's this idea that it's portrayed like history, but there's a spiritual, but really there's spiritual ideas behind it. We shouldn't take it as actual history. So that those are like two kind of figurative approaches, and I'll, I'll share my perspective on that next week. Um, another one, well, next week or the week after. By the way, you should always get what I mean and not necessarily what I say, and hopefully there's not too much of a gap between those two things. But um, the other one is that, um, that it's just false, that, that nothing is, in this account is real, that it's actually just unenlightened, uneducated myths. These are the atheists who say there is no God, and of course, nobody created the world, and nobody should read the Bible and believe anything in it. Like, that's another approach. And then the final approach is people who just say, I'm God, and you're God. So whatever you believe is true. So if you want to believe it, and you want to believe it's real, then it can be real for you. And if you don't believe it, then it's not real for you. And if you believe some other religion, then that religion's true. And actually, you could personally believe like contradictory things, and they could all be true because you are God and you determine truth. And what I think is interesting is that that basic approach can be found in every category. There are people who show up in church and they think that whatever they believe is true, that they, they get to decide what things mean. And so all of those... Well, I think that the very first one is what's true, but I think where I want to start is I want to start just actually reading, reading this account, and then we'll kind of think about it. And so I would encourage you to open up your Bibles and to kind of read and to think. We could, there, there's people that preach for like two or three months on <laughs> what I'm going to try to cover today or today and next week. So what that means is we're going to go quick and we're not going to address every single thing, but I do want to start by just looking at what the Bible says. And I want to just start by just framing creation. In the first three days, God is making containers. And in the next three days, God's filling those containers. That's one of the ways to think about creation. And so it's beautiful. There are a lot of really the repeated phrases in here. Those are things we should pay attention to. When, when you're reading a passage and things are stated over and over, you got to ask yourself, why is this stated this way? What's the emphasis? What's the point? And I think actually as you think through the poetry and the mytho-history account of it's inspired and it's true, but it's not to be taken literally, then one of the things I would do is step back and say, okay, you have all these repeated phrases. And if they're poetically repeated, then what is, what's the significance of that? What's God communicating through that thing that was repeated? Or if it's mytho-history that kind of is explaining a truth, well, what's the truth? Because we actually do find, by the way, poems about creation. And we'll jump into that next week. But just because you categorize something as a poem or if, if you say it's an inspired account that's supposed to teach us something, then we have to take a step back and say, well, then what is it teaching? And, and what I would say is what Genesis teaches is a problem for, for it, when we think about evolution and creation. There is no approach to Genesis, whether you take it as little, literal history, whether you take it as poetry, 
or whether you take it as mytho-history, there is no approach to Genesis that is compatible with evolution except the approach to say it's not true or the approach that says you're God and you can say anything you want is true and even if it's contradictory, it can still be true. So, but we'll jump into that next week. But for now, I guess I started too soon. For now, we are going to just actually read this account. So day one, the creation of the universe, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there's two words for create. One is bara, like the word that's used here. It's talking about creating things out of nothing. And then there's another word for creation used in this account, which is the word for form. So God is creating everything out of nothing, and then it goes on to talk about Him forming the things that He's created. Well, this is not like just in those concepts, God created dirt out of nothing. And then He took that dirt and He formed it into a man and breathed breath into its life. So He was forming what He had created. So that's some, a way to think about this passage. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when we think about that, and especially if you think about the whole idea of evolution, um, evolution has no room for a God who creates. That's the whole purpose of evolution, is how do we describe the world with no God? So I don't care who you are or who you're having a conversation with. I don't care how much of evolution you accept. You are on the list of zero acceptability to any atheist, to any atheistic uh, evolutionist. So that doesn't get you any ground. But I will just say that God created the heavens and the earth, and every Christian believes that. If you don't believe that, you're actually not a Christian. Number two, the second verse, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, one of the things that you need to, we need to think about here, and this is a really cool thing, is that the entire Trinity is involved in creation. So you have God creating the heavens and the earth. You have the Holy Spirit hovering over the surface of the deep. And then the New Testament tells us that Jesus Himself was the one who actually created. Did you guys know that? Um, let me throw a verse here. Um, John, John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 says... In the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Um, Colossians 1.16, by the way, this is stated all over Scripture, but here's another example it just says, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So that's talking about angelic beings. So it's whatever you see, God made. Whatever you can't see, God, but Jesus specifically made. And that includes angels and demons and Satan and everything. Look, look what it goes on to say. All things were created through Him and for Him. So Jesus is the Creator. Think about that. This Genesis account involves every member 
of the Trinity. Now, some people, uh, as they're approaching this, I'm not even going to address this, but there's this idea of the gap theory. And so there's a lot of people that say that, that when it goes from uh, in Genesis chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth in verse 1, and then verse 2, and the earth was without form and void. And so what people try to, some people try to say is, is there's this incredible desire to create an opportunity for really vast amounts of time. And so people will say, well, there's a gap between when God created the world and when he started making things described in Genesis. Between one and two is known as the gap theory. And some people will say that formless and void has the idea of God's judgment. And so what happened was God had created the angels, Satan sinned, Satan was thrown out of heaven, God judged his creation, and now he's going to remake it. And then they go, so when we study the earth and we study the ground, and there's really long periods of time, well, that's why. It's because God made it, and then billions, Satan rebelled, and billions of years, God remade it. So what I want you to know is there's no biblical reason to hold to that view. That is a view that is only to try to create time in the Genesis account. It's just saying God made everything, and it was formless and void. In other words, He had not shaped it, and it was empty. He hadn't filled it up. And as you read the rest of the account of Genesis, it just says God made everything, and then He brought shape to it. That's what we see in the description of the creation of the world. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the the light day, and the darkness He called night. Now, there's three ways. Well, before we get to day, let me just say this. How did God make everything? He just spoke. He brought it into existence out of nothing. That's how God spoke. I mean, that is His power, that He just says things and they happen. And we're going to see that throughout this creation. We're also going to see throughout the creation account that God gives instructions. And every time He gives an instruction or a command, it happens. You know, that's one of the things that throughout Scripture, it's like when, you, when, when the Bible's talking about worshiping God, the Bible talks about how inanimate objects worship God. The stars declare God's glory. They're the work of His hands. When, when, when people are praising Jesus and the Pharisees say, shut those people up, Jesus says, if they stop praising me, the rocks would start crying out. And in all of creation, including this creation account, whenever, whatever God says is done, um, everybody and everything obeys God. And that's one of the things that we see is there's a couple of God's creations that don't necessarily always obey Him. Do you want to know what those two unique kinds of creations are? Angels, right? God made angels. Some, some people will say, and we'll get into this maybe later, the image of God is that you have mind, will, and emotions. There has to be more to the image of God than a mind, will, and emotions. You know why? Because angels are not created in God's image. But what do angels have? They have a mind. They have will. They have the ability to think. And they have emotions. Uh, angels 
have joy. Angels were able to make an intellectual choice to disobey God. And so when we're defining um, what it means to be made in God's image, some people just attribute that to intellectual ability to understand and make moral decisions. Angels intellectually understand and make moral decisions and are not made in God's image. And so angels can decide what decided whether or not they would obey God, and people decide whether or not they will obey God. But throughout the creation account, God speaks, and through His power, He accomplishes things. And there's this powerful indication that everybody and everything should always obey God. And then he, after creating uh, the light, I think this is interesting, let there be light, and, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness, and He called the light day. So day, the word day gets used three times in three different ways, not three times, three different ways in, in the book of, in this, these opening chapters of Genesis. Day, and this is what I want to say is that, you know, there's all kinds of Hebrew discussions about the word day. I find that all the Hebrew discussions of the word day are exactly like our English uses of the word day. They're, it's exactly the same. So sometimes we'll say, oh yeah, it was a very beautiful day today. And we're talking about the light part of the day. Or the day's longer today than it was at a different time. Or uh, can you believe how short the days are? We're not talking about 24 hours. We're talking about the lighted part of a day. And here uh, that example is used. The light he called day the darkness he called night. And we're also going to see that it's used as a 24-hour period of time. And at the end of the first day, light morning and evening. Uh, If you have a morning and an evening, then you have one day. And that's going to be repeated throughout this account. And so the word day is used for a 24-hour period. And then in verse 4, which we won't read today, of chapter 2, it says, in the day that God created the heavens and the earth. So it's used for a period of time. Um, And isn't that how we use the word, that those same exact ways? Uh, How many days are you going to be gone? I'm going to be gone for three days. We're talking about three 24-hour periods of time. Um, Oh, do you remember back in the day when we used to have long hair? I mean, we're talking about a period of time. And so we use day exactly the way day is used in the, in the Old Testament. Now, one of the observations I want to make is that there are zero examples of the word day ever being used with a number when it is not a 24-hour period of time. Zero examples. When was the last time that somebody said to you, hey, how long did you live in that city before you moved here? And you said, oh, I was there for three days, meaning 30 years, three decades. Um, Yeah, I went on a trip for two days, meaning two months. Like nobody uses the word day with a number, meaning anything other than a 24-hour period of time. And the Bible is exactly that way. Um, And it goes on and it says, God separated the light from the darkness, and the light He called day, the darkness He called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Now, 
That, the way that that is phrased is different than any of the other days. It actually says day one. So it's not just saying the first day. It's just day one. On the first day that there ever was, that is what happened. Um, let's consider uh, the second day. It goes on and it says in verse 6, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. Like you connect, God says it, and it was so. It's not like God put this in this system like into order and it just continued going and eventually that happened. God says it, and it is so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, and there was the second day. So when God's making the heavens, he, th- there's two heavens. That's two things. One heaven is the sky, and another one is space. So those are the heavens. And then when God is separating waters, he's, um, there's an expanse. And so God is separating the waters from below. So he separates earth and water Um, So there's dry land, and now there's water on the earth. And then God puts water above the expanse. So one of the ways to understand this, and I think it's true, is that the earth, when God created, was covered with a canopy of water. So you have the earth, you have waters on the earth, and then in the sky, there's a layer of water. And so we'll talk later about potentially how that impacts the age of people that we see, the fact that it never rained, and what caused the flood. God unleashing all the water that He had stored around the earth upon the world. And so um, that's something that we'll get into at some point. And so there's this expanse. It was evening, there was morning, the second day. Now the third one, um, God separates the waters and the land and makes vegetation. And so God said... Let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters were gathered together. He called seas. And God saw that it was good. So every time God is making things, he's labeling it as good. And God said, let the earth sprout forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation and plants yielding seeds according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which was their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, and there was a third day. Now, so we have plants, we have the ocean, we have the earth, and these plants are reproducing after their kind. We have evening and morning, but what do we not have yet? There's no sun, there's no stars, and there's no moon, so there's nothing to bear light. And, and some people would read this account and they would say, well, this can't be literal because we all know that light comes from sun. So explain to me how you get to the third day and how you get 
uh, plants and, and how you get all these things and there's no sun. Well, you know, I think that that, that, is like, that is a struggle for anybody who's thinking about this creation account from the wrong perspective. Um, sometimes people uh, think about what we see in this life, and we think about natural laws. And we see natural laws, things like gravity and just, just various natural laws. Things like the more dense something is, the more it will sink. So if you take a rock and you throw it into the ocean, if a rock is more dense than water, it sinks. And if it's less dense, it would float. That's what happens with boats. You know, they're like this. There's lots of air in there. They displace more water than their weight, so they float. And people approach the world as though God created by grabbing a science book and saying to himself, let me think, what are the various principles? Like if we were to build things, we would study earthly properties, and then we would build things according to those properties, and, and we would want to know, okay, I have to support this, this weight, so what do I need to do that will be able to support that weight? Now, all of the natural laws that we know, we simply know because we look around at the world that God made. And we just say, how does the world work? And a natural law is just an observation about the way God made something. But God, when He was making the world, He didn't think to Himself, well, okay, let's see, if I'm going to have light, I need to have a light bearer. So let me make a sun to shine some light. No, God just made light. And by the way, um, God made light out of nothing. Uh, God made the light bearers out of nothing. And so when you're reading this with a, I'm in the world and the world has to work the way the world works, rather than saying our entire world works the way it works because that's what God decided to do. And so God can just create light and He can create darkness. And then He could say, and now I'm going to create something that in my world is going to display light. So first I make light and then I make something to display the light. You know what's interesting when you read about heaven? Uh, do you know that there's light in heaven? And do you know what specifically says? There's no sun. Because God doesn't need a sun for light. So if, you're, if, if you have an anti-supernaturalistic approach to life, you would look, go, that's ridiculous. Um, instead of going, the reason that dense things sink instead of float is because God decided, I'm going to make dense things sink. God could have made the heavier and more dense it is, the more it floats. So we could take super undense things, throw them into the ocean, and they would sink. And the heavier and the more dense an item is, we could throw it into the ocean, it would float, if that's how God decided to make it. And then when we wrote science books, we would talk about how the more dense something is, the more it floats. The reason that we describe the world it is is because that's how God chose to make it, because He's making everything as He decides to make it. And I want to say something else. Spiritual laws are no different than natural laws at all. And people have a tendency to believe in natural laws like gravity and disregard spiritual laws. For example, you reap what you sow. And what we need, all need to understand is that gravity works the way it works because God said it would work that way. He decided to make it that way. Earthly natural laws are exactly the same as spiritual laws. 
They're just as powerful. We are just as obligated to them. And we have a world that looks around at the things that God has done, and they steal glory from God. And they, have you ever heard anybody say Mother Nature? Mother Nature is amazing what Mother Nature has done. I mean, isn't this crazy, Mother Nature? Do you know that there is no Mother Nature? There's God. And people are like, they, they cannot deny the things that they observe. They can't deny God's creation, His intelligence, His expression of design. And so what do they do? They refuse to give God glory and they say, oh, Mother Nature. Do you know people do that with spiritual laws too? Like the laws of reaping and sowing? You ever seen the non-Christian world go, karma? It's like everybody kind of observes how sometimes uh, things kind of come back to you and you reap what you sow. And you'll see some guy like yelling at some old lady and being totally rude to her. And then he turns around to walk away. He steps off a curb and breaks his ankle. And people go, karma. No, that's not karma. There's no such thing as karma. That's God exercising His providence in life. And so the fact that God doesn't make light bearers until the third day, if you have an anti-supernaturalistic approach and you think that somehow God is bound by the laws of the universe instead of the one who made the laws of the universe, well, then that would be a problem for you. But if you read this the way God wrote it, if you think about this, the way that people originally read this, they weren't going, wow, God made everything out of nothing. I believe that. But you know what? He didn't make the sun until the third day, and He made light on the first day. That couldn't have happened. Nobody would ever read and think about it that way. If you think rightly that God made everything out of nothing, then you would just read... How does God say He made this? So then he goes on, and he's talked about all those, these things. Verse 4, let there be lights. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. That's our light and dark use of the word day. And let them be for signs, for seasons, and for days, and for years, and let them be as lights in the expanse of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. You know, when you think about the stars and what God has created, He's created all of these things to give us a frame of reference. You know, it's amazing that sailors way back before we had all of our technology could tell what, the, what, what time of year it was and their location on the earth based on the stars. God created stars, and He made things to be ordinary in the sense of repeatable and stable so that we could look around the world and have a frame of reference for ourselves. He goes on and he says, um, verse 16, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. That's the sun and the moon, although we knew that, right? And the stars... And God set them over the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Now, I just want to say that 
as we think about this, God just spoke it into existence. And the average person, and, and I think we're better off today than we were maybe a thousand years ago. But when we read and think about creation, um, it is so mind-boggling. It is mind-numbing. And, and when you are originally on the earth, I think about the people who are in the Bible where it just says, the heavens declare the glory of God. I mean, that's true. But the more we, we learn, the more we know, and the more we see, the more amazing God's creation is. You know, when God said that His nature, divine nature, is clearly seen, you know, I think about people who looked up into the stars of the sky and they just thought, man, God is so amazing. And they looked at all the stars and they think about how God had named all the stars. And I remember reading a book in history where somebody actually counted all the stars and, and they, they, they came up with a number of stars. And I just remember thinking, that's pretty spectacular. I don't think I could lay on the ground and count that many stars and not lose track of where I was. So my hat's off to this brilliant scientist, this intelligent man that could count the stars. And, and eventually they realized, yeah, there's more stars than you think. You want to know what's amazing? And I wanted to play some videos from YouTube, but, um, and I, so I found the perfect videos I wanted to play, and I, I threw them in the, the life group discussion notes. You guys can click on those and watch them. But I'm not going to play them in church today because I couldn't make sure that I had the copyright deal worked out correctly. But here's the deal. The universe is so much bigger than anybody could possibly imagine. Um, it is unbelievable um, what we see here. You know, the earth is huge, but we can comprehend it, right? Because we can fly around it. You can drive on it. You can take a boat somewhere. The earth is massive, but it's comprehensible. What's crazy when you think about our universe, the other planets in our solar system, is that, you know, six Earths, you could put a, up a, a picture of Saturn, and you could stick six Earths. They'd be like this little small thing in one of the rings of Saturn, like just a little piece of it. I mean, you know, it takes, uh, when you think about that, it takes light 1.3 seconds to get to the moon from the Earth. And light's pretty fast, 1.3 seconds. But you could take every single planet in our solar system and put it between the Earth and the moon, and there would be space to spare. Like, these planets are massive. And when you just think about how far they are, you know, Jupiter is huge. You could stick 1,300 Earths into Jupiter. Um, Jupiter has 53 named moons. 53. But now we believe it has 79 moons. You know, when I think about Jupiter and how huge it is and how many moons that it has... You know, the biggest moons were found in 1610. That was a long time ago. Did you know that in 2011, they found another moon? One of the things I think about when, when we're thinking about the universe and the, the staggering dimensions, that, that we can take Jupiter, which I'm not saying that's close by. Jupiter is like, it's hard to comprehend how far that is, although we can comprehend it. Um, but we're just now discovering a moon on Jupiter. But we think we can make concrete decisions and discussions about things that are billions of times farther away than Jupiter. Like, it's insane. But when you think about the massive nature, you know, the sun is huge. 
You could fit a thousand Jupiters inside of the sun, and it takes light 8.3 minutes to get to Earth. And it takes 5.5 minutes or 5.5 hours to get to Pluto. Like, that is a long way. Our universe is massive. But did you know that the sun is tiny compared to other stars? Like, these are all things. By the way, when you're looking for what's the largest star, there's like, every day there's like a new list of what's the largest star. They find a bigger one. But you know, the biggest sun known to date as of June, so I don't know if there's a bigger one, um, you could put 10 billion suns inside of it. Um, if, if, that, if that sun was where our sun is, the size of it would be as big as the orbit of Saturn. Like, it's unbelievable how big it is. And when you think about that power contained in the sun, and then you read where God says that His nature has been clearly seen in the universe and what He's created, and you think about how big God is. God is big because the Bible tells us He's everywhere. God is actually everywhere in the universe. You know that God knows the details of what's happening on earth, but God actually knows the details of what's happening every place in the universe. When you think about, um, when you think about the size of our galaxy or you know, our solar system, and then you look at that in the Milky Way, it's like a tiny dot that you can't even see, like this massive area. But then when you back up, you realize that our solar system is a tiny dot that you can't even see in the universe. Like, it is unbelievable. And when you think about God's power and that He spoke everything into existence and that He knows the name of every star, like He's named them all, that is absolutely staggering. And then we think, wow, God's powerful. And you think about the wisdom uh, in God making this universe that functions so perfectly. Man, God knows. He is all-knowing. He knows everything. And you know, that's one thing to think about. When you think about how small things are in this universe, like that makes it even more staggering. Like, have you ever thought about how tiny things are? Have you ever thought about, like, we can look at the stars and we see this amazing beauty, and if you get a telescope and you look out there, you see incredible beauty that you couldn't see with your naked eye. Have you ever looked at something kind of plain under a microscope and thought about how amazingly beautiful it is? Now, when you think about God's omniscience, God knows every big thing in the universe. But God also knows every tiny thing in the universe. At the same time, God knows about the stars and their orbit and everything way out there. that we, we can't even comprehend how far they are. But God also, in every moment, knows the beauty of the tiniest little molecule, the tiniest thing that we could look at under a microscope, those things that are so beautiful. God is experiencing and knowing the beauty and the order of everything all the time. You know, atoms are incredible when you think about like some things and how small things are. So an atom, we all know, that's like one of the very small parts of the universe. Um, an atom, if you were to take an atom 
and you just took like, um, if, you, if you were to take, um, if you were to take a, an atom and it was the size of an apple, and then you took that apple and made it as big as the world, the earth, um, the crazy thing is that one of the, um, one of the, mo- one of the atoms in, in that molecule would be the size of an apple in comparison. You know, atoms are mostly empty space. There's like this tiny nucleus. And if you were to take an atom and make an atom the size of the earth, the nucleus of an atom, so you have a nucleus of an atom which is, con- which is made of protons and neutrons, and then you have these electrons that are orbiting that, which by the way, they used to portray as like the orbit of like a planet, but now they know that they actually don't know how atoms move. Um, and, and so you can either know where an atom is or you can know how it's moving, but it's actually impossible to know both things at the same time. And so these atoms are kind of moving, but they, they kind of make like this, they make this thing. So they make, you know, the, the electrons are going around, they're big, but an atom is like very, very, it's like nine, over 95% space. And then you have these protons and neutrons that are just absolutely tiny. In fact, if an atom was the size of the earth, the nucleus of an atom would be about 200 yards, like smaller than a football field. That's how tiny it is. And did you know that inside a proton, they have things called quarks, which those are like small things inside of an atom. And that's one of the crazy things when we think about um, creation and how unthinkable it is and how unimaginable it is. And, and the fact that like when you're observing an atom, like they shoot atoms and, and they do just various things with atoms. And one of the things that they've discovered is that if you're watching an atom, it behaves differently than if you're not watching it. So they shoot these atoms through these slits and then they look at what they do on a paper or on whatever this thing is that they're using to, to measure it. And then they watch it and they do this same experiment and it comes out different. You know they have no idea why. And that's one of the things I think about when it comes to creation, when it comes to our universe, and God has just done these things that we cannot even comprehend. And a person's going to say, well, there's things about an atom that I can actually look at and study that I don't understand. But I'm going to make comments about how God made the world and I'm going to I'm going to say, now it didn't really happen the way God said. And, and that's one of the discussions is, is that actually what God said? You know, when we think about the stars and we think about this world, it displays God's, uh, in how, how unfathomable, how infinite God is. And when I think about all those things, and we're going to wrap this up here, but when I think about all those things, when you think about the fact that God knows the numbers of the hair on your head. You know, one of the things that we're going to see in this creation account is that God's transcendent. He's over and above all of His creation. But God is intimate and personal. God knows you. He cares about you. God is so wise. He is so smart. He knows so much. Why would we ever question guidance or direction that God gives. God is so powerful. When He says, I am working everything for the good of those who love me and who are called according to my, my purpose, why would any of us ever face a situation in life and be discouraged and be afraid when we think about 
our Creator. It is unbelievable. And the fact that God is so huge, so massive, and yet so personal that He knows you and He loves you and He cares about you. Those are some things that we see. We'll look at how God filled... um, We'll look at day five and six next week. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for giving us your word. Lord, as we think about your kindness and and Lord, just what is displayed in Genesis, the way that you communicate this. And Lord, um, if this is intended to be a historical description of the way that you created the world, God, I pray that we'd see that. Lord, if... if, if, uh, if this is a, a poem, if it is mytho-history, Lord, I pray that we would learn the things that you have for us to learn in this. And God, most of all, I pray that as we make these decisions, that we would, Lord, allow you to speak, that we would read your word, that we would trust your word, Lord, that we would never impose the view of people who hate you, who deny your existence, that that would never be a filter that we use um, in, in understanding your word. But God, I also thank you that we don't have to be afraid of truth. Uh, Lord, we're not hiding or ignoring things that we see in this universe. Even though everything that we approach, we realize that, that we are fallible and we don't always see and understand co- things correctly. And yet, Lord, we know that, that you made this world for us to to see who you are. And God, I pray that you would bless us in our study of this book in your name. Amen.